Hello and welcome to the program. My name is Luke Hunt and with me today is Brian Isler. Now Brian is the uh, director of the Southeast Asia program for the Stimson Centre in uh, Washington. And Brian, welcome to the program. Hey, it's great to be here, Luke. There's a lot of uh, talk at the moment about the Mekong River, which is one of your favourite subjects, no doubt. Mm, indeed. A lot of people haven't been listening, is the impression most of us get over the last 10, 15 years. Let's go back a little bit. What are the main problems with the Mekong River today? Well, that's a great starting point, Luke. This river has been threatened by what humans, what uh, people in, in China, Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand are doing to the river, mostly by building dams, are planning to build dams, and the threats have been known for a long time. But now the predicted impacts of building too many dams on the river and its tributaries are starting to play out. And they're playing out against the backdrop of three years of prolonged drought, which are caused by a lack of rainfall. So uh, dams and, and weather effects are working against what I call the mightiness of the Mekong. And the, the Mekong is mighty because it's the world's largest inland fishery. It's responsible for producing more than 20% of the world's freshwater fish catch. It's really an amazing thing. And Indeed. we can take a deeper dive into how that happens yeah. um, later in the podcast. But mm. um, what dams do, they, um, they reduce that mightiness, that productivity of the Mekong fishery and agriculture uh, agricultural production in, in parts of the basin on which um, 70 million people directly derive their resources. It's an extraordinary phenomena in terms of the history of the river. How many dams have been built? Oh, well, it depends how you categorize a dam. For me, a dam is a dam, um, whether it produces hydropower or is used mm. for irrigation purposes or flood control or, or water supply. So there are at least 400 dams built throughout the entirety of the Mekong Basin. And, you know, the basin is quite large. Uh, uh, it cuts through China. It, it forms most of Laos. It is in most of Cambodia, half of Thailand or, or just under half and, and parts of Vietnam, too. And each of these countries has built, built dams um, for various purposes. Thailand actually has the most with more than 150, mostly built for irrigation purposes. And, China's second with uh, something like 100 and almost 130. Uh, most of them are tributary dams, smaller, but 11 of the largest dams on the mainstream of the Mekong are in China. Laos has um, got somewhere around 60 and, and 40 or 50 more under construction. So Laos is you know, locked into 100 dams. And Cambodia has a, a handful and Vietnam has 70 or so. So there's a lot of damming going on in the Mekong. And, and, I think the damming has inexorably altered the, the mightiness of the Mekong. We've moved into yeah. a new phase. That's what I'm wondering. Have we reached that tipping point? And it's almost like these dams have been presented as a fait accompli and you have to accept it whether you like it or not, which I find a little bit uh, disheartening. Yeah, um, it's it's been tough watching the... The data and the returns on fisheries come in and, and watching agricultural production struggle in mm. the Mekong Delta, you know, on top of COVID over these last years. Right. And the, the these, these assumptions need to be tested. Uh, and unfortunately, I don't I don't think the right research is being done to 
track whether uh, fisheries have depleted past the point of no return. Can the Tonle Sap, which is the, the feature of the Mekong, it's the Southeast Asia's largest lake, um, it's responsible for creating uh, and making the Mekong into the world's largest inland fishery. Um, whether that process that, that drives the fishery, the yearly flooding process, has irreversibly been damaged by dams, um, all these things need to be looked at deeply right now. And the tools are all there to mm. determine whether we pass the point of no return. Because once you pass this point, then your policy options and your planning options are very different from being able to try and recover the resources to maintain and adapt what you what, maintain what you have and adapt to a new future. Right, and another wild card in the uh, equation is uh, climate change and the impact that's mm-hmm. having on, in terms of the volatility of the weather patterns we're seeing, and it's adding to the extremities, as I understand it, in terms of the droughts are longer, the storms can be more violent, the flooding can be bigger, and none of it is occurring in terms of uh, the seasons that we've all grown accustomed to. Right, you got that right. The climate science predicts longer dry seasons, and the Mekong typically, uh, under normal conditions, would have like half of the year as a dry season, half the year as the wet season, and you need to have that equal division mm. in order to keep the Mekong mighty. Again, we can take a dive into the science of how that works right. here in a bit. But uh, longer dry seasons, more intense storms. So that it doesn't mean that there'll be less water coming into the Mekong altogether. It's just coming in at different times of the year. So what puzzles me uh, is that the the prolonged drought that we've seen over the last three years, so uh, three of the top 10 lowest flow years for the Mekong in the last 111 years of record keeping happened in the last three years. Right. And it's really concerning. And I don't know if this is part of a pattern of early onset climate change or if it's just kind of a normal pattern of, of low flow and low rainfall that, that parts of the world often go through. You can look back through the history of any river system and find these prolonged periods of drought. And when that happens, um, normalcy often returns and, and the ecologies bounce back. I mean, it's ha- probably happened in the Mekong before. Mm-hmm. And the fisheries bounce back. That's evident by the fact that you know the fisheries were quite robust 10 years ago and the mekong is resilient but if this is part of a normal pattern of climate change at an early onset then yeah we've moved we definitely moved into a new phase and and planning and needs to be adjusted there's one argument which i think is taken quite serious in that uh, it was climate change that led to the end of the Angkorian Empire and that it was, uh, mm. they had a succession of droughts over 40 or 50 years and the canal system right. seized up with sediment. Uh, there was no longer the fish catchers and access to the water and hence they moved. Right. Well, and that that's a prevailing theory and the Angkorians moved out of Angkor and, you know, kind of deteriorated after that, never disappeared, but you know, eventually yep. settled there at Phnom Penh and, yep. and created a new capital. But interestingly, within mm-hmm. that theory, there are other competing theories about something like uh, building massive irrigation systems for uh, competing temples within, uh, for building uh, competing temples within different uh, kind of principates of the Angkor system and, right. and and other things that happened. Those things were probably all happening at the same time. You know, you've got yep. climate change setting in 
poor engineering decisions about how to use water because you believe there's an abundance and you believe the abundance will be there forever and in a lack of foresight and kind of a greed motivation driving what was happening and and that's kind of what's happening now as well here in the Mekong. Uh, investment driven decisions about how to utilize the the river system are not coordinated they're driven by profit motives and it's uh, happening at a time when climate effects are, are either here or they're coming real soon and look the lo and behold the the natural resource base of the Mekong is, is deteriorating at a much larger scale than what happened in Angkor. Right and one of the other issues confronting the river there are many is uh, rising salinity and that uh, farmers in Vietnam they were accustomed to uh, salt water for about one month of the year now it's four right. the uh, there's been speculation that the salinity levels have, have gone from kind of 90 kilometres inland up to now about 120 and are encroaching near mm-hmm. the uh, Cambodian border. And that obviously has ramifications for fish stocks, for the crops you grow, what you can and can't do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we watch the, the gauge data daily. You know, we're, we're total Mekong nerds here right. at the Stimson Centre. And you can see tidal effects at the gauges daily now, at times of the year at Kratie Way, you know, that's kind of up halfway in the middle of Cambodia. Mm-hmm. You can even, we think we see them on the on the Tonle Sap River. And I think the tidal effects were always seen and felt at Phnom Penh, but you know, they're pushing farther and farther upstream. I don't think that's sending salinity in necessarily to upstream parts of Cambodia, but the tides are pushing the river. Right. Um, yeah, and that's evidenced of, uh, from rising sea levels. So it's probably a problem that parts of Cambodia will start to deal with soon, as yep. Vietnam also struggles with it in the Delta. And uh, unfortunately, Cambodia is not as well resourced in terms of uh, human capital uh, capacity to deal with these threats as Vietnam is. And Vietnam's struggling as well. So, you know, if, if you're a farmer or a fisher in the Mekong or Cambodia or Vietnam, you're in for some tough times ahead and there are very few other options for you in terms of a livelihood. Yeah, uh, some of the consequences are uh, quite dire. Before we get there, you mentioned the Stimson Centre before. Can you give me a little bit more background about the Stimson Centre and its involvement with the Mekong? I know the centre has an illustrious (laughs) history. Uh, You kind of really took the Mekong River and the countries that are responsible for the mess we're in. You really took that on a few years ago. Can you give me a, give us a bit more background about that? Sure. The Simpson Center is a think tank in Washington, D.C., and, and our work across a number of programs focuses on security issues, traditional and non-traditional. So the Mekong fits kind of a non-traditional security theme of water mm-hmm. and energy and food security. And, you know, I think of many things uh, we are responsible during the Obama administration for being the the main guiding force uh, in the development of the Lower Mekong Initiative. That's the U.S.'s foreign policy program towards the Mekong and Mm -hmm. addresses water issues as well as others. And that was set up by my former uh, 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 boss and and the former director of the program, Dr. Richard Cronin. And the, the team had worked on Mekong issues for about a decade and and promoting constructive solutions to um, to the, the slate of hydropower dams that were in the planning process, such as substituting them with solar and wind and 
also promoting ways to smartly operate dams that are already built or, or uh, uh, improve regional power trade so that uh, countries can do more with less and therefore you need fewer dams. But uh, in April of 2020, we uh, promoted a study by a climate consultancy called Eyes on Earth. We took them on as partners uh, and, and are close partners to this day where Eyes on Earth study for the first time showed the impacts of China's upstream dams at a downstream gauge in Thailand. And their study showed, again, for the first time, when and for how long and what degree those upstream dams in China were impacting flows um, through water restrictions in those reservoirs upstream or, or water releases. And this was important because um, China doesn't share data with the downstream at all on the operations of its dams and never has. And, and these are the largest dams in the system. Two of them hold 50% of, of the water of all those dams that I mentioned, all those 400 dams right. that I mentioned earlier. And uh, so it was really groundbreaking work and kind of earth shaking in the Mekong and very controversial, I will say, because it came during the Trump administration and, and uh, right. there was some high level uh, officials at the Trump administration that also kind of promoted that study. And things got interesting for a while, but it, it culminated in the development of the Mekong Dam Monitor, which uh, the Stimson Center uh, produces and, and manages along with Eyes on Earth. And we're watching those dams uh, every day. Right. Um, and we're able to generate data on the operations of those dams in China and, and scores of dams downstream that don't have information provided about them. And, and it allows a much fuller picture to be painted of of what's happening in the Mekong. On the topic of security, I know quite a few academics in uh, counterterrorism and that type of security, and they uh, have marked the uh, lower Mekong area and the 70 million people that live there as a, a real hotspot going forward in terms of the type of conflict that could emerge. There was that argument put around many years ago in regards to water wars, that kind of thing. But right. additionally, if you've got 70 million people in the basin and they can't get their regular fish catch and they're running out of water and they are poor, mm. you know, these are not mm. these are not middle-class people who shop from supermarkets. How real do you see this as a threat going forward? I mean, we're talk in terms of the dire consequences, which I mentioned earlier. Yeah, I... Look, I think that that's a much more viable line of inquiry uh, to explore and to map out and to try and prevent than, say, water wars. I, I don't see a scenario where water become, becomes so scarce that um, one country in the Mekong starts lobbing bombs at the other. And, and I think that the, the world and the region will work to prevent such a thing from happening. But... So, so the scenarios, kind of the nightmare scenarios that we plan out um, mm. often involve societal breakdown in, say, a country like Cambodia because resource provision has, has fallen apart for millions of people. And they can't find jobs and they can't eat fish because there are no fish anymore. And they look for other sources of, of income uh, and sustenance and, and meaning in their life. And this is where kind of informal non-state um, networks could pop up to try and, and meet their needs, whether 
that's through criminal methods or, or, or terrorist methods or, or what um, whatnot. And we've seen the, the region break down before, right? You know, I mm. think that the Khmer Rouge have a, sh- there's a shade of that in the Khmer Rouge. Absolutely. Uh, yes, will. indeed. Yeah. 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 Um, and so that's why it's, it's most likely to happen in Cambodia. You know, you can imagine a situation where Thailand no longer wants to uh, receive labor migrants from Cambodia. And there are also massive refugee camps at the border. We've seen that movie before, too. Indeed we um, have. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, um, and, and these networks, uh, you know, uh, pop up and to serve and try and facilitate some of the, the needs, nefarious or otherwise, of, of what's happening. And, and, and to make matters worse, you know, state actors in Cambodia kind of align with these groups and in order to survive and, and facilitate some of that nefarious activity. And this vicious cycle just ensues. That's, that's again, the kind of the breakdown situation where a kind of rot sets in in mainland Southeast Asia, um, one that really is disheartening, considering the, the work that the countries, the region and the rest of the world has done over the last 50 years to bring peace and stability to the region. And it all happens because too many dams were built yeah. um, at a time when the dams shouldn't be built. You know, that's that's the real... Kind of tra- tragedy of, the, of uh, that kind of nightmare scenario. Yep. Uh, and then going back to climate change, uh, quite a few people here, I think, are concerned about the um, the snow caps on the Himalayas, and mm. it's the weather patterns here are basically driven by two monsoons: the north, right. the northwest, and the northeast. Uh, the northeast isn't that powerful. That's when we get the big the big typhoons that hit. Uh, the Philippines late in the year. But the early wet season is driven largely by the monsoon that comes out of uh, India. And if there's no snow and ice and glaciers on the the Himalayas, I mean, if they were to disappear in 50 years, what would that mean for water supplies in Cambodia? Does it turn into a desert? Um, You know, this is what could be playing out now if you look at the weather patterns, the most intense storms over the last three years of, of this prolonged drought, um, they're easy to see because they show up as spikes of, of like high spikes of, of water levels in the river. Mm-hmm. They happen late, later in the year, and they're coming from those northeasterly monsoons that cut across the Philippines and and, and across Vietnam's central coast and then dump a lot of water in the, the Ratanakiri and Montakiri province in Cambodia and then on the Tonle Sap too. So that that seems to still be happening and, and perhaps even at a more intense rate, uh, rate. If you look at those spikes in the data, some of those storms send river levels way above normal for that time of the year, for a short period of time, and then the river levels recede. Right. Uh, so that's that intensity, that's the danger, right, of, of sudden floods, and huge flash floods um, yep. affecting millions of people. But it's the, the first, the, the, the Himalayan monsoon that you mentioned, um, that's what is appearing in the data to not be, be showing up, and it's what concerns me, whether that, again, is a is a function of a lack of snowfall on the snow caps um, in the Himalaya um, or something else has to be determined. But the climate science predicts that much of the melt that will happen over the next century is going to happen over the next 30 years. That's going to send 
more and more water into the river as those snow caps melt. And that water runs out into the ocean and really will never return, you know, since it's derived from glaciers that have been frozen right. for a really long time. And the Himalaya is uh, one of the the warmest or the, uh, the highest. Uh, it's a part of the world with the fastest rising temperatures. I think that's due to the fact of its position on the globe and, and its elevation. So there's a lot to be concerned about there. Uh, once that melt happens, uh, the water's not coming back, which I think also make, begs the question of the viability of China's big dams. You know, China wants to build more dams above its most upstream dams, something like eight more. Um, and they're going to, to, to hold a decent amount of water. But if that water's not available, then they're not going to be useful for hydropower production. And, you know, so, so, so yeah. why move forward with these? That begs the question, what can they do? Now, I'm, I'm sure you've read all the press releases and reports out of the Mekong River Commission over the last 10, 20, 25 years. And, I mean, mm. they're normally full of the same recommendations. You know, the six countries need to take bold action. They need to talk more. Right. They need to share information. Uh, <laughs> it, it seems rather meaningless uh, when we're constantly hearing this kind of thing. And... None of it seems to be happening, and to be blunt, it doesn't really seem like much of a reaction to what could be an enormous problem in the uh, years and decades ahead. Yeah, I'm alarmed too by um, the lack of redlining that's happened. You know, the, 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 these patterns of flow flows have been repeated now for three years. Um, the Mekong River Commission has cried out uh, for... Uh, help and also uh, uh, demonstrated its extreme concern more and more frequently about the way that China is manipulating the upstream. But there, there hasn't been a system established to say, well, this year is going to be really dry. We need uh, more water. Dams, whether they're in China or they're in the downstream, can be part of that solution. And the solution needs to come in the wet season. It's the wet season that's been really dry. It's not the dry season. It's right. Dry. The dry season's always yeah. dry. This is where um, I want to go next, actually, so, is like what can be done uh, from the engineering side as yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what I'm getting at. It, it seems that the, the important stakeholders in this process are marching towards a solution, and the pace of the march is quickening. Whether they can get there is a different question. So you see the MRC uh, crying for help and more frequently, and... Um, urging these bold actions more frequently. You see the MRC engaging now more frequently with China. Um, China is actually sharing a bit more data than before, but no data on its on its operational dams. Uh, MRC technically doesn't need it because the Mekong Dam Monitor provides that information, and MRC is now using Mekong Dam Monitor information. They published it in, in the last report, which is a clear signal to the Chinese to say, hey, you know, we know what's happening with your dams, and we can promote a solution with this data that helps us and also you know, provides you with some form of, of benefit in that process. And that's why I think that, that they're close to being able to march towards a solution. And the simplest solution right now is to engage the Chinese on freeing up some water during these dry, wet seasons to allow more water to flow downstream.
It's simple because you only need to do it with two dams. Remember, I said two of the largest mm -hmm. dams are in China. They hold 50% of the water that's held in those reservoirs. It was 400 dams that I mentioned. That's a lot of water. And, and they're owned by one company. And there's one government on top of them. The other solutions require talking to lots of different governments, lots of different dam operators, coordination with uh, countries that really aren't, don't have the capacity to coordinate. So China's the easiest solution, but China's probably also the hardest solution politically. It has been for quite some time, actually, uh, most notably yeah. since uh, Xi Jinping came to power in uh, 2013. Uh, <laughs> In the immediate months, so this year is uh, shaping up to be another bad year. Uh, I read one report which suggested that uh, water capacity in uh, for irrigation in Cambodia is at just 20%. And the mm. government came out just a week ago issuing a statement asking people to use water sparingly. And mm. I haven't seen that before. Hmm. Yeah, on these against on the back of these strings of low flow and low rainfall wet seasons, you know the the part of the Mekong that is typically saturated with, with water every wet season just gets drier and drier, and and that happens year on year, so you get drier and drier each year. Mm -hmm. Dams are taking their cuts during of water pulling water out of the system during the wet season you know, when, when the water is needed the most and they're letting it out in the dry season and most of that water just like flows out into the ocean. So it doesn't provide any relief. So it's not surprised to me, uh, there's no surprise to me that um, that reservoirs, the irrigation reservoirs like around the Tonle Sap or in the dry provinces of Cambodia just aren't filling. Then it's gonna get worse next year if the rains don't come again. And that's, that's the big if. And this is something that puzzles me. I haven't mm -hmm. seen a good uh, weather prediction for the coming wet season. You know, is, are we going to get yep. more rainfall this year? If, if we are, then the system could bounce back and we'd be back to kind of normal days for water availability in the Mekong. And that would be great. So we, we've yeah. got to watch and see what the wet season uh, rainfall predictions are. But yeah, for the coming months, there's really nothing that can be done. There will right. be no uh, new water coming into the, the Tonle's sap uh, yep. uh, basin that's you know, the part most of the irrigation dams are in that large tonley sap basin and the only way that they get water is from rainfall or through the tonley sap flooding during the wet season right yeah uh, and as we all know that uh, when droughts break they tend to break rather suddenly and big you know i mean uh, coming from <clears throat> australia i've seen quite a few droughts over the years and the floods that normally end them are quite spectacular. And in the Mekong Basin, uh, another report I was reading the, uh, the other day was uh, suggesting that the uh, the dams are holding back 50% of the sediment that normally washes down uh, in, right. in, the, in the regular water flow. And uh, right. without those banks being replenished by that sediment, they go hard, brittle, and you get a big flood on top of that. Uh, an awful lot of damage can be done. Right. Yeah, the ground is dry, it's brittle, it's ready for um, kind of something to come through and, and, and flush it out and make a big mess. So without that sediment that is typically flowing through the Mekong, it can exacerbate the, the flooding situation. Mm. Uh, and indeed, 
China's dams alone trap something like 60% of the sediment in the system. And that's because there's a lot more mountainside for water to run off up there in China compared to the lower reaches of the river. Uh, so they just grab more dirt off the sides of mountains and pour it into the river, and, and it's all getting trapped behind dams. Downstream dams, of which there are scores now, or hundreds, they do their own sediment trapping too. And So, you know, even if the... Getting to kind of another topic, if mm. if the the monsoon or the the, the wet season effect of the, the high high river levels returns, the sediment's not ever going to return. That's that's a permanent change to the river system, and right. that also impacts fisheries and agricultural productivity for for the people who who uh, need the fish and the agricultural products. Right. It's been it's been a terrific talk. Uh, before we go. What would you like to see happen in the next six months? I'd like to see good meteorological predictive capabilities put to use to tell us what this coming wet season will be like in terms of water uh, and then the track whether that's going to happen in terms of rainfall. And uh, if the prediction suggests that there will be uh, another low year wet season for rainfall, then a quick discussion needs to be had um, with the with the Chinese by the Mekong River Commission, or if the Chinese aren't listening, with others in the in the Mekong River Commission company, countries about how to operate dams during the wet season with with more reserve, so um, or more conservatively, if you will, right. to take less water out of the system um, so that the river can flow more naturally, and that will. That will help a bit. That will help the reversal of the Tonle Sap. That will bring some natural flooding back downstream. That's important for agricultural processes. And to, to watch something like this play out. And, you know, if that type of quick action can't be taken, well, then a long-term or medium-term action in a similar vein needs to be taken. I don't think the country should go about this in a huff because there there are risks to to doing this you know you've got to mm-hmm. compensate dam owners for not producing electricity possibly or uh, there are always risks of you know creating a situation where there's more river in the system or more water in the system and then a, a massive storm comes and, and it creates a large flood so larger than it necessarily needed to be um so there are risks involved but um you know, the, the river's at a point of crisis where risks need to be assessed and, and kind of bold and strategic new uh, plans need to be put in place to help the river system recover. Otherwise, some of, like one of those nightmare scenarios that we discussed could eventually play out and no one wants to see that happen. And on that note, Brian Isla, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Luke. Happy to speak with you. Cheers, mate.